And this is our second week in uh, the new series that we're doing for the fall. We're calling it Re Rules for Life, the way that we best operate. And it's a deconstruction of best-selling author and clinical psychologist Jordan Peterson's book, 12 Rules for Life, an Antidote to Chaos. Uh, the second rule that we're looking at, the rule tonight is this one, which I've mentioned a couple times, treat yourself like someone that you are responsible for helping. In like Christian terminology, we might call this the stewardship of self. And we're going to root our teaching tonight in Psalm 139, verses 1 through 6 and 13 to 16, which say, You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out, my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is even on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's too lofty for me to attain. For you created me in my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful, and I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before even one of them came to be. This is God's word. We're going to break the teaching tonight into these three points. We'll talk about the treatment of self and actually, uh, it's a little more bleak than that, the unfortunate treatment of self sometimes. Then we're going to talk about the life that belongs to God, what that text was just teaching us. And finally, we'll look at the great exchange, God's self for self exchange, the gospel in our lives. The treatment of self, the life that belongs to God, and God's self for self exchange. First of all, the treatment of self. Uh, again, the rule is treat yourself like somebody that you're responsible for helping. And what Jordan Peterson would say at the beginning of this chapter in his book is he'd say, we're just not very good at this, most of us, many of us. And one of the statistics that he would point to is the fact that uh, Americans, when we actually... Uh, make the efforts and jump through the hoops to go to the doctor when we need to and get a prescription medication, only about two-thirds of Americans ever actually fill those medications. In other words, one-third of all uh, Americans, when they go to the doctors and get a prescription, only one-third of them never actually fill the medication, per the prescription. Of the two-thirds that remain, only half of them actually ever take the medication correctly. Uh, in other words, some people just miss dosages. Some people stop way before they're supposed to stop to get rid of an infection or whatever. Some people uh, just never actually take the medication in the first place. And actually, to push it a step further, what Peterson will also highlight is the fact that Americans are actually far better at caring for their pets than they are for themselves. So the uh, statistical evidence of Americans who will go take their pet to the vet, get a prescription for their pet, they are significantly more likely to obtain and administer medication for their dog than they are for themselves. That proves a couple really interesting things. Number one, it proves that you're capable of caring for another creature. You're just, for whatever reason, not motivated to take care of yourself very well, generally speaking. Why is that? Well, it's really complicated, actually. Um, Peterson goes through a number of different reasons why that could possibly be. Uh, so, for instance, if you think about what constitutes responsible care, one of the reasons, one of the ways that it's easy to understand this is if you talk about it in terms of parenting, but then you apply it to yourselves. So, for instance, 
you could theoretically uh, take care of your child by bubble wrapping your child and putting them in a basement and allowing them never to leave for 18 years. And they would never get into drugs and they would never get into alcohol and they would never get into sex or porn or anything like that that could devastate their life. And yet, would any of us actually say that locking your kid in a basement for 18 years is healthy for them? No. So there is such a thing as hyper and obsessive care. And this is true of what we can do for our kids. It's also true of what we can do for ourselves. So we have an awareness of that. And sometimes we use that as an excuse to not take care of ourselves because we don't want to be persnickety. We don't want to be self-centered. And so we just don't care take care of ourselves then. Here's another one. In that realm of uh, taking care of kids too. Um, the moment you decide, like in order to raise another life, it's going to require some sacrifice on your part. But to what extent? So I was reading an article not that long ago that said, when a woman gets pregnant, essentially from an evolutionary biology standpoint, she's made herself more vulnerable to the world, like in every way. So for instance, from the moment she conceives, uh, her hormones change, her hips begin to widen. When she goes into labor, her hips widen more. When your hips widen, it actually makes you harder for you to run. So if you need to run away from a predator, it's a lot harder uh, if your hips are no longer where they originally were. Uh, not only that, but when you're uh, carrying a child, that child is, is draining resources from you. They're, they're making you more tired in some respects. And that's only when they're inside of you. When you actually are child rearing them, when you're raising them, they take that much more resource out of you. Not to even mention the process of delivering a child, which we forget up until relative recent history, uh, there was all sorts, one of the highest indicators or, or causes of fatality in relatively young women was childbirth. So the idea is we know intuitively if I am going to care for other lives, there probably is going to have to be some self-sacrifice. And we understand like maybe I shouldn't care for myself, maybe I shouldn't whatever because I should be caring for other people in my life. And that's almost kind of like a maternal instinct that we have. It's also just sometimes a rationalization for not actually taking good care of ourselves. Another, another example would be um, the issue of, so we know general human weaknesses, and we know other people sort of know our particular weaknesses, but nobody actually knows our weaknesses as well as we do. Um, so no one holds you in more contempt than you do because nobody knows your secret transgressions, your secret faults, all of your flaws and your weaknesses. Uh, the way that you do. And so for some people, it's almost like they feel morally undeserving of care. And so if you circle it back to the idea of pets, see, uh, an innocent dog is just this harmless, innocent, non-self-conscious creature. And to some people, it seems more deserving of care than those of us who know all of our flaws. Now, I know this, obviously I don't have as many um, counseling cases is like a clinical professional, but I know this even in pastoral care. I cannot tell you how many times I've worked with somebody and they talk about, I say, why do you feel the way that you feel about that? Why do you perceive yourself that way? And then I'll say, would you tell somebody else that you cared about, one of your friends or one of your families, would you blame them for feeling that way? Would you blame them and get angry at them for acting that way? And they say, well, of course, I would never do that. So why are you doing it to yourself? Because at that moment, you don't believe that you're actually deserving of quality care. Now, those are just three reasons. Um, fear of obsessive, tyrannical care, recognition of need for self-sacrifice to care for others, 
belief of being morally undeserving of care. That's just three reasons. There's thousands of reasons why people lie to themselves and say you don't really deserve to be taken care of and you shouldn't care for yourself. It's like this self-sabotage. Peterson puts it like this in the second chapter. He says, if we wish to take care of ourselves properly, we would have to respect ourselves, but we don't because we are, not least in our own eyes, fallen creatures. But, he goes on to say, you see, another problem has arisen. It's easy to believe that people are arrogant and egotistical and always looking out for themselves. The cynicism that makes that opinion a universal truism is widespread and fashionable. But, such an orientation to the world is not at all characteristic of many people. They have the opposite problem. They shoulder intolerable burdens of self-disgust, self-contempt, shame, and self-consciousness. Thus, instead of narcissistically inflating their own importance, they don't value themselves at all, and they don't take care of themselves with any attention and skill. See, it's complicated, but it's never virtuous to allow yourself to be victimized by a bully, even if that bully happens to be yourself. And from Jordan Peterson's standpoint, he would say you have a moral obligation to take care of yourself. Why? Because you are inextricably connected to other human beings who are counting on your wellness. Um, this is maybe never seen better than in moments of suicide, where you feel intense pain in self-focus, but the moment you're gone, it's not as though the pain goes away for the world. You leave behind you a wake of people who are mourning and perhaps even traumatized by what's happened. P Peterson would say, he's not even a Christian. And he would say, you have a spark of the divine inside of you. You're morally obligated to take care of yourself because you have the image of God placed upon you. Well, so his advice is this. He'd say three things. Determine where you want to go in life so that you can advocate for yourself, bargain for yourself, and not end up resentful of yourself or someone else. Uh, so... Um, Again, first of all, determine where you want to go. Secondly, articulate your principles. Learn to be able to articulate yourself so that you can defend yourself against others who might want to take advantage. And number three, maybe most importantly, discipline yourself carefully. What he means by that is keep your promises to yourself and then reward yourself when you keep your promises to yourself because two really important things happen. You condition yourself to trust yourself and you condition yourself to be able to know how to motivate yourself. Okay. In general, I would say pretty good advice, but not perfect advice. Let's move on to our text. And what we see here is the life that belongs to God. And actually, you know, I know full well when I'm talking to a bunch of relatively, you know, conservative Christians and we start talking about a counselor, uh, an American psychologist talking about self-care, immediately conservative Christians start to like roll their eyes a little bit and say, yeah, that's part of the problem with the world. It's narcissism uh, under the facade of self-care and self-love. And honestly, that's not completely untrue either, I don't think. In fact, one of the, my favorite statistics to share, and I share this one almost every couple of years, so some of you might have heard it before, but one of my favorite research uh, on human behavior and human perception uh, sociological studies says that for the past 75 years, the Gallup organization has polled high school seniors about how they perceive themselves. And back in 1950, uh, the question was asked of high school seniors, do you believe that you are a, a very important person? 
And in 1950, you know how many high school seniors said yes to that? Take a guess. 12%. Jump ahead to 2005, high school seniors were asked the exact same question, do you consider yourself to be a very important person? And the number now is 80%. I've never in, you know I'm a nerd for those kinds of studies, right? I have never seen that kind of monumental shift in self-perception. In fact, there's, there's other ones that confirm this. Uh, one that was done starting in 1976, young adults were asked to take 16 different goals of life and order them. And fame was one of them. And in 1976, fame ranked number 15 of 16 for young adults. In 2007, when they did the study again, it ranked 51% of young adults said that was very important to achieve some kind of fame in life. Now, this is not at all surprising when you analyze things like the, the stuff that influences culture, whether it be the arts or education or whatever else. Look at, look at the themes of the children's movies that your kids watch. The next Pixar movie that you watch, I guarantee the theme of it will be something along the lines of, you're special, trust yourself, and be true to yourself. Furthermore, the next commencement address that you listen to, and I don't care if it's a kindergarten commencement address or a graduate commencement address, it's going to say something almost undoubtedly like, follow your passion, chart your own course. You have a responsibility to do something great because you are, in fact, great. This is at secular institutions they talk this way. This, this is, please, that's dogma. That is the doctrine of self-reliance. It's the doctrine of self-trust. So I'm fully on board with anybody who believes that remedying negative self-talk merely with positive self-talk is not going to get you in the right spot. Uh, I just want one other thing I want to share on this. Uh, maybe from my perspective, one of the best examples of the American ethos of the last 50 years is trapped in the person in the biography of, of one individual that Aiden and I actually watched the documentary of the other night. It was called Untold the... Uh, Caitlyn Jenner story. Caitlyn Jenner, uh, if you don't know, Bruce Jenner in the 1970s was a gold medal winning Olympic decathlete, which generally you got the title of the world's greatest athlete at that point. And yet going on to 1976, to the Olympics in 76, in the mid-70s, Caitlyn Jenner, at that time Bruce Jenner, was wrestling with this, who am I and am I a valuable person? And there was one point in the documentary where I paused and I said, holy smokes, listen to this. She's talking about the struggle at the time, and she said, I had this war going on inside of me. Are you really trans? Are you gay? I, I didn't even know anything about any of that. So just keep your mouth shut. But I thought, what if I take the next four years of my life, and every minute of every day, I test myself to see how good I can become at something? This is an opportunity to prove myself, to prove my masculinity, to prove myself to the world that I am, in fact, a valuable, worthwhile human being. If I can win an Olympic gold medal, maybe I can prove that these issues don't even exist. Holy smokes, that is so spiritually telling. In fact, the moment I heard that, I, I paused it and I turned over to Adrian, who's heard me give this spiel a couple times before, and I said, that is what the old Lutheran theologians refer to as the what? And she said, the opinio legis. And I'm like, yes. <laughs> and that's, that's the kind of conversations that go on in our household. The, the, it's Latin. Opinio legis is Latin for the opinion of the law. And it's humanity's inherent belief that doing enough good can somehow atone for the inborn that's bad. 
the inborn sin. Maybe I can prove myself worthwhile to the world. Maybe I can prove myself worthwhile to myself. Maybe I can prove that my issues, those issues deep down inside that maybe nobody else knows about, maybe I can prove that those issues don't even actually exist or at least distract myself from them. That is a powerful force inside of every human being. It's powerful enough to generate a gold medal. And uh, I'll tell you what, changing your self-hate to self-love or overwhelming the bad in your life with perceived good, that ain't going to do it. Because, yeah, is self-hate terrible? Yes, it is. But self-affirmation, unbridled, or self-obsession clearly isn't the solution. So what is the solution to negative self-talk or self-hate if it's not just personal affirmation? Well, it comes in what the Bible teaches here in our lesson tonight. And we're going to look again at Psalm 139. Again, uh, what this text, traditionally what Bible scholars will say is this text is about the non-communicable attributes of God. Uh, so theologians will say there's communicable, communicable, and non-communicable attributes of God. The communicable attributes of God are like the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness. God is like that, but humans, he made humans to be capable of that as well, especially to the degree that the Spirit indwells you. Uh, not to mention things that every human has the capacity for simply because they're human. So things like rational thought, conscious self-awareness, relationality, creativity, compassion, those are simply products of being created in God's image. They're aspects of God's nature that we experience just by being humans and again, especially to the degree that the Spirit indwells us. Those are communicable attributes. But God has this whole other set of attributes that we call incommunicable attributes. So things like omnipresence or omniscience. He knows everything. Uh, omni, which one did I miss, miss yet? Uh, omnipresence, omniscience, omnipotence. He's powerful. Transcendence, sovereignty, immutability. Not only can these things not fully be transmitted to us, but we can't even totally comprehend all of those things completely. So what do we find in our text here tonight? We've defined, uh, we have a great explanation of incommunicable attributes. So you look at the first opening verses and what does it say? It says, you know me, you perceive my thoughts from afar, you're familiar with me in every way, before I even speak you know what I'm going to say. And he concludes, such knowledge for me, it's too wonderful, it's too lofty for me, it's overwhelming to me. You know what I think, you know what I feel, you actually know me better than I know myself. Okay, he's all-knowing. It also goes on to say, not only that, but he created us. So specifically, you created my inmost being and knit me together in my mother's womb. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All my days are foreordained. So what is this saying? God knows us. God created us. God, through Jesus Christ, has redeemed us and paid for our life. And therefore, in every way, from every angle, God owns us. See, one of the most powerful lies that Satan breathes into our society uniquely is this idea that you are primarily responsible to you for you. Complete lie. You are responsible to God for the self that he redeemed by his blood. And what that practically means then is, guess what? My time, it ain't my time. It's God's time. Your money it's not your money. It's God's money. Your body is not your body. 
It's God's body. Your sexuality is not your sexuality. It's God's sexuality. Your life is not your life. It's God's life. Whatever he says goes. He owns all of it. Now, what this essentially then says is, you know, it's more than just cradle to grave. It's saying that, this section is saying that from conception through resurrection, our entire life completely belongs to God. You've probably heard this passage before especially those last verses used to refer to kind of the the Bible's anti-abortion stance. That's absolutely correct. But understand why. Because abortion is disrupting the work that God is doing. Going with God's will glorifies God. Disrupting God's will, that's a way of describing sin. So if God is knitting us together in our mother's womb, to interrupt that and disrupt that is sin. It's true on the opposite side of the spectrum as well, right? Nearing death, it really isn't about the, the quality of life. Active euthanasia, see, it's a mismanagement of my life because it's not my time to choose when my body ends because it's not my body. It's God's body. It all belongs to him. So I don't even have a right to take my own life. And here's what, I, I'm going to push this a step further. And I want your brain to turn upside down on this. Not only because most of us can say, I don't, I don't have a right to take my own life. I think most of us would not allow to that. Let me give you, let me push it further. You don't have a right to pursue your own dreams. Whatever dreams you have for yourself right now, if it's dreams that are just being generated by your flesh, you don't get to follow your own dreams because your life isn't your life, your body's not your body, and your dreams aren't your dreams. You get to follow God's dreams for you. Now, some people are immediately thinking, wait a second, that is very limiting. And I'm, what I'm saying is, no, it's liberating if you understand it correctly. Here's why. Because, look, if God knitted you together in your mother's womb, if, if the God of the entire cosmos has had his hands on you and his eyes on you from the moment you became life and conception, can you imagine how valuable you are? You don't get to call yourself not valuable. You don't get to mistreat yourself. Uh, you don't get to beat yourself up over the mistakes that you made a long time ago and you just haven't gotten it over. You don't get to do that. You don't allow yourself to do that because it's, it's not your life to beat up. You don't get to hate yourself because you're not as pretty as you want to be. You don't get to hate yourself because you haven't accomplished nearly as much as you want to accomplish. You don't get to be lazy with you and you don't even get to overwork you either because you don't belong to you. You belong to God. Brings us to the last, last point. So what we've said so far is you don't belong to yourself so you don't get to bully or denigrate or poorly steward yourself. But we also said that, you know, mere self-love is not a solution because it can very quickly become uh, self-obsession or narcissism, which breeds all other kinds of pathologies and destruction, either for yourself or for somebody else in your life. And so you got to find a balance. What's the balance? The balance is to treat yourself the way God treats you. Well, how does God treat you? My favorite examples, favorite illustrations in the Bible of God's tender care is what he does for a depressed prophet named Elijah. In 1 Kings 19, 
God comes to Elijah and he nurses him back to health. And what's really interesting is the chapter before, Elijah had been enormously successful. He had taken on the prophets of Baal on top of this mountain in Israel. And he was successful, but afterwards he's exhausted. He feels totally alone in life. And he goes and he sits down under a tree and he cries out that God would take his life. And I mean, if, you ever, if you're a Christian who's ever been depressed, you know it's exactly like that. Like, just give me whatever is behind door number two. I just don't want to deal with this. I'll take anything else. And God comes to him. And interestingly, God doesn't give him what he's asking for. He doesn't end his life. He doesn't just tell him to have more faith. Actually, he doesn't, he doesn't give him like a pill either. Some of the things that we might expect he doesn't do. What, you know what he does for him? God makes Elijah a meal. Like he bakes him some bread and gives him some water. He encourages him to take a nap. He does a little Bible study with him. He tells him to get up and move around and get some exercise. And then he encourages him to embrace all the other believers that still exist in Israel. In other words, embrace your, your believing community. It's, it's God nursing him back to health. It's wonderful. It's tender. It's patient. It's nuanced. And obviously what we learn from that, it's not only how God cares for us, nor is it just how God wants us to care for one another. It's also teaching us how God wants us to care for ourselves. And furthermore, what the Bible says is the only time you're allowed to not fully care for yourself is if you're sacrificing yourself to help take care of somebody else. And the reason I know that's godly is because that's exactly the way the Bible defines God's love for us. This is now we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we can now do that for one another. Um, there's, this, there's this peculiar line in the text that I want to circle back to. As my last point in verse 15. It's one that we easily glance over because the, most, the one that gets all the attention here is verse 13 that says, you knit me together in my mother's womb. And every verse after that we think it's, well, it's saying kind of the same thing. But verse 15 saying something different. Look at what it says. It says, my frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. So again, the psalmist David had just said, you knit me together in my mother's room. And that's, that's complicated and, and extreme, but we, it's comprehensible. This is, this is something different. What it literally says in Hebrew here is something about my bones were assembled in the depths of the earth. The Hebrew word for the depths of the earth here literally means a region below the surface of the earth, the realm of the grave and death. Well, wait a second. Is he talking about babies anymore? Because babies they don't get born in graves, do they? So what's he talking about? We said, the Bible says there's one time where it's okay to allow hurt to come to yourself willfully. It's when you're sacrificing yourself for someone else. And the pinnacle example of this in scripture is in the person of Jesus. See, I know that's godly because that's literally exactly what the Son of God did for me and you because he loved us so much. See, there was a time when someone truly sacrificed their life for others, entered into the depths of the earth and the realm of the dead in order to assemble bones, not for birth, but for rebirth. 
Not to knit us together, but to re-knit us back together or to resurrect us. Jesus, who is in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself lowly, took on the form of the servant, and humbled himself all the way to death, even death on a cross. And then he descended into the lower recesses. Why? So that those who haven't loved him properly or loved themselves properly would by grace nonetheless be properly loved by God. So that those who were naturally born would get supernaturally reborn. And at the cross, the Son of God willfully was torn apart by the wrath of God over sin, but because he wanted our redemption, so that those who chose darkness would by grace emerge into light. And therefore, let's just wrap it up like this. Really interestingly, if you hate yourself or you're obsessed with yourself in love, like neurotically, both of those are variations of hell. Hell for you or hell for other people around you. If you hate yourself or if you overlove yourself, that becomes hell for you or the people around you. On the other hand, self-forgetfulness that comes from understanding that the creator and redeemer and sustainer of the cosmos works on your behalf. Self-forgetfulness Lack of self-consciousness, dancing like nobody's watching. That, that's a little slice of heaven. Caring for yourself so that you're of wonderful use to God and wonderful use to your neighbor. That's godly. That's completely godly. God formed us exactly the way he wants us to be. So you, you have to accept that. Don't resent your genetics. Don't resent your upbringing. Don't resent uh, your looks. Don't resent your abilities. They, you might think that they all get in the way of you pursuing your dreams, but God didn't wire you the way he did to pursue your dreams. God wired you the way he did to pursue his dreams. And he's calculated you absolutely perfectly for that. We belong to him and we worship our creator, redeemer, and sustainer when we manage all of it wisely. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, it is true that some of us in this room probably just think more highly of ourselves than we ought to and we feel like maybe this message doesn't completely apply to us and, and therefore you need to humble us. But I also know that there's many in this room who are filled with insecurity, shame, and self-loathing and we just don't show ourselves grace or care for ourselves as you do and as you'd have us do. Please take our eyes off ourselves, whatever the case. Turn our eyes to you so that we can lose our self-consciousness. Help us wisely manage our lives, which is really your redeemed life, to the glory of your name. We pray this in your name. Amen. This message was a production of St. Marcus Lutheran Church. For similar content, subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or our YouTube channel. For more information about how to support our urban gospel ministry in Milwaukee, please visit stmarcus.org.